This is David Beeson offering you a taste of glory in chapter 32 of A History of England, dedicated to a moment so significant that a few people still remember it. It's come to be known as the Glorious Revolution. This was the moment when Britain's leaders, many Tories as well as Whigs, finally decided to put an end to the reign of James II of England, James VII of Scotland. They were sick of the Catholic monarch's constant attempts to increase his power and to appoint more Catholics to high places in an essentially Protestant nation. The final shock had come with the birth of a son by his second and Catholic wife, threatening to secure a popish dynasty on the throne. So they turned instead to Mary, one of the Protestant daughters by his first wife, and her husband, who was also James's nephew, that's how incestuous these things were, William III of Orange, Protestant leader of the Protestant Netherlands, and the victorious Dutch general we've met before. It's often said that the Holy Roman Empire wasn't holy, wasn't Roman, and wasn't an empire. The Glorious Revolution is one of the events to conjure with in English history, but it was neither glorious nor truly a revolution. That's not quite right, as it happens. It was a revolution in the way the term was used back then. The wheel of fortune had revolved, there was a major change. What there wasn't, though, was blood running in the streets. There was no guillotine, no aristocrats were hanged from street lamps. Instead, like a well-bred kid attending a birthday party, clutching his invitation in one hand, William of Orange came knocking at the door of England quite politely, even though he did have a few troops with him. Did he have a presence in the other hand? I'll leave it to you to judge when we get to the end of his reign. This was an era where most ships depended on their sails, and the wind had been set against William's crossing the Channel to England for quite a time. That had led many in James's entourage to bless the Popish wind. But then it changed, something that never happened for poor Napoleon's invasion plans over a century later. William's sizable fleet and army, significantly bigger than Philip II of Spain's armada of a century earlier, was wafted across the Channel by what came to be known as the Protestant Wind, for blowing so favourably for the only successful invasion of England since William the Conqueror. William of Orange landed on the 5th of November 1688, Guy Fawkes Day, anniversary of the foiling of a Catholic plot. A neat coincidence. He hadn't simply been able to wave a sceptre and order the mobilisation of his forces. In Holland, he was a stadtholder, roughly the equivalent of Cromwell as Lord Protector, but he didn't have the power over the army that a king, or indeed Cromwell himself, enjoyed. However, the kingless Dutch Republic, seeing Louis XIV of France making threatening military moves, and not believing James II's promises of neutrality, in any case, he would have preferred England actually on its side rather than merely neutral, decided that it would be no bad thing to have a Dutchman taking control, or even the throne, in London. So it took a chance, taking men away from its defence to accompany William to England. A clever innovation in Amsterdam, in the form of what was arguably the first real stock exchange in the world, enabled William to raise a huge loan in record time. When William asked one big lender what he wanted as surety, the reply was apparently, If you are victorious, you will surely repay me. If not, the loss is mine. William landed in Torbay in the southwest. 
In the centenary year of the Spanish Armada, he led an expedition twice the size in ships and men, having taken a fraction of the time to put it together. It included a printing press, which he used to publish propaganda to whip up support for his cause among the English, arguably as powerful a weapon in his armoury as any of the more conventional kind. He headed for London at his leisure, dawdling for two months on the way. That's under five kilometres a day. A gentle stroll, basically. Though he had a reasonably large army with him, James had twice the number. But this is where James's behaviour played against him. He'd screwed up badly at the start of his reign by taking steps that alienated the ruling elite of England. On the other hand, even he was smart enough, right at the end, to read the writing on the wall. He started to row back at top speed. He called parliamentary elections in which Catholics still weren't allowed to stand, a move which might have helped placate Protestant opinion. He'd previously dismissed a number of Protestant churchmen and politicians, but now he started hurriedly reinstating them. However, by this time William had already landed, so, as so often in English history, wisdom had come far too late to do any good. The trust he'd lost proved impossible to win back, just as happened with his father Charles I. The army in particular had had enough. Senior officers could see their careers being menaced to make way for Catholics. The vast majority, including John Churchill, the general James most relied on, and who had defeated the Duke of Monmouth's rebellion, rallied to William. On the way to London, William's forces grew in strength while James's were being whittled away. And then James did something strange and out of character. After all, he'd proved his worth in battle more than once. He'd show it again the following year in Ireland. But during William's march from the West Country, James lost his nerve. He bolted to London from where he attempted to escape to exile. Unfortunately, he was caught by seamen who failed to recognise him, possibly because of his disguise, possibly because in the age before internet and TV, it wasn't that widely known what the king looked like. They thought that he was behaving suspiciously and might be a Jesuit priest, so they took him back to London. This was actually quite an embarrassment to the other side. They decided to lock him up in Rochester on the Thames east, downstream, of London. Or rather, not to lock him up. They left the doors open and a minimal, casual guard in place. There was even a boat waiting outside. He fulfilled expectations and fled to France, to the delight of his captors. A convention parliament met to decide what ought to happen next. That set a precedent for assemblies determining what to do at national turning points, one that the 13 colonies in North America would follow in time. Even many Tories who'd wanted to keep James as king but hoped William would force his hand and make him obey the law now began to give up on him. His flight, a growing majority of politicians from both parties argued, meant he'd abdicated. That left the throne vacant. There was nothing to stop William, and more to the point Mary, mounting it. And mount it they did, as Mary II and William III, or as English school kids know them, William and Mary. A nearly bloodless coup had taken place. England's last Catholic king was off the throne. The Stuart dynasty, with its boundless confidence in its own righteousness and scorn for anyone else's advice, was over. What was most significant was that it ended the temptation by the monarch to make his rule absolute as it was in France. 
What emerged in its place was a new balance of power between monarch and parliament, forced to work together. The new king had only shown up on being invited by parliament. He had even insisted on having that invitation before he came. The partnership between them laid the foundations for a limited constitutional monarchy instead of an absolute one. Many felt that this state of affairs was actually a reversion to something far older, the essentially English way of doing things in a mythical golden age. I'm unconvinced any such age had ever really existed, and setting up a constitutional monarch in England was a lot newer than that kind of nostalgia might suggest. On the other hand, though it was a profound change, and one most people found desirable, it was hardly revolutionary, at least not in the way we think of revolutions today. So, was the Glorious Revolution truly a revolution? And since the former king had simply fled without much of a fight, had it given any real opportunity for glory? You be the judge. Perhaps you might agree with me that it was revolutionary only in the rather limited way the word was used back then, while it was glorious only in its consequences. What were those consequences? They were the constitutional changes the Glorious Revolution brought about. They were to play a hugely significant role in the development of English government, not just in Britain, but on both sides of the Atlantic. And on that elevated note, let's close this episode. Next time, we're going to get into the sheer joy of having not one reigning monarch, but two. A bargain deal, two for the price of one. Something for us to look forward to. Thanks for listening. <laughs>